Blog Talk Radio. Another edition of the Wednesday Night Fight Network uh, Sports Conversation. Frank uh, Carroll always at the controls. Frank, have you got a dedication to start the show tonight, or should we jump right in? Uh, we can just jump right in. 
jump right in. Okay. Yeah. We'll go. Uh, this, we do, go ahead. We can do the uh, uh, the promo for our uh, our sponsor. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, I don't know if you've heard the numbers. Um, 39, 51, 42, and 57. That's not the lottery numbers. That's what the state has allowed the uh, electric companies to raise your rates in the last two years. That's not stopping there. It's coming in. Another one is coming after this session, which will be Monday. Um, if you're not, uh, if you don't want to pay that, those high numbers, if you want to get your, your control on your bills for your election, give BioSolar a call, and Patrick and the boys will work something out with you. They make a deal with you. They put the biosolar panels on your house. For the next 25 years, you pay the same amount to them. It's well worth uh, getting in touch with them. The Patrick will be on a little later tonight, and we'll have him give you all the finals. But uh, biosolar, they're registered in each and every state and able to move to each and every state to put the uh, units on. Uh, with that in mind, we're going to go back to Don. Go ahead, Don. All right, we'll get the program started. As always, Roy Cummings is in Tampa, Florida, as always, covering everything the National Football League, the National Hockey League, baseball. We uh, we always go to him at the top of the show. As expected, uh, Roger Handler is in Atlanta, home of the champions, and he'll come in with many, many things to say about all sports tonight. I'm Don Henderson. It's my pleasure to uh, sit in here. And as I said, uh, on the controls, Mr. Carl runs everything for us and tries to Keep us aware of what's going on. Roy, before we went on the air, I talked to the uh, the other fellows along the network, and uh, I, I really have nothing to say about baseball. I, I don't care what they do, but I have nothing to say about it. If you fellows would like to talk about it, that's fine, but I have nothing to say. Well, you know, uh, I, I understand your frustration, Don, and uh, by the way, welcome back, and uh, Man, I, I it I, yeah, I, I completely understand your frustration. It's uh, it's I think there's a lot of people out there who are probably in the same camp as you. I you know look, I, I love baseball more than anything uh, in terms of sports, um, and uh, I, I I'm you know on a scale of one to ten, I'm probably at about a three in terms of uh, being you know of antipathy over it. Uh, because I'm I'm just so frustrated and mad. You know, I I'm I'm anxious to see the season start. And and look, my team is not likely to be any good. I'm a Cubs fan and uh I'm probably looking at, you know, maybe 100 losses, uh, you know, and uh, possibly if if things uh, depending on what they do here, but you know, either way, uh, I I like all baseball teams and uh I love the game and I can't wait for it to start. But even, you know, even with that, I'm like, okay, well, it's not here. Well, I'll just concentrate on hockey. Uh, you know, NCAA basketball tournament's coming up. Can't wait for that. Uh, golf golf has been exceptional. But a lot of rookies, you know, making their making their mark on the PGA Tour. Um, heck, if I have to start watching WNBA and, you know, women's golf, I'll, I'll turn to that too. There's there's stars everywhere. And I think, the, I think Major League Baseball has made up a real bad decision here. Here's the thing, guys. Uh, Major League Baseball is not what it once was. It used to be the national pastime. Some people still look at it that way, but I think we realize now, if you're if you're objective about it, uh, 
and the NFL is the national pastime, and that's what people seem to be most passionate about. Um, and it's it's probably far and away the the, the leading most the most interesting uh, the, the the sport that fans are most interested in across the country. And they figured out how to be relevant um, eleven out of twelve months. And in that one month that they're not necessarily relevant, July, everybody's anxious to talk about it anyway. Um, so they figured out the, you know, they figured out the formula and good for them. Um, and, and I think what baseball has forgotten is that it's become a bit of a regional sport, much like the NBA, much like the NHL. Um, it's still played by millions of kids, which is exceptional. It's great. needs to be done. But they're not growing the game, guys. This is what this is where they're where I think they've become extremely short-sighted. They are not growing the game. The owners are not allowing the game to grow. Uh, there are issues within the game, and we can certainly talk about that. It needs to be talked about by somebody, um, and that needs to be fixed. And in order for that to be fixed, you have to get the players on the field, and you have to let the people see the stars. Um, it's a league that has kind of moved away from. Uh, celebrating its stars, uh, promoting its stars. It, it, it's a little bit like the NHL in the terms of it likes to promote its game and, and think that people will find the stars. But, uh, you know, they, they need a lot needs to be done here. And coming off, you know, something they couldn't control, which was a, a 2020 season where, you know, half the teams, you know, they played half a season or not even a season, half a season, 60 games. Uh, followed up by last year where a lot of teams were devastated again by COVID, um, weren't able to, you know, barely play a full season, a lot of disruptions. Uh, to have this come on the heels of that, and for some owners, as we've heard, uh, have the opinion that, hey, you know, we survived COVID playing a 60-game season. We survived last year. If we don't play until June, we'll be fine. Yeah, you'll be fine. You won't lose your franchise, but you'll lose fans. And sooner or later, that's going to hurt the bottom line. This is clearly all about the bottom line. They want to break the union. It's, it's, I, I believe that. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but if it's a bottom line business, well, you're hurting your bottom line by not playing games. You may, not be, you, know, you may be saving some salaries here and there, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you're, you're hurting your, your product more than you're helping it. And, uh, you know, so I'm sure someone must have a chart somewhere that's going to tell me that, well, in the month of April, because attendance is usually pretty low in cold weather cities, especially, um, you know, we only make, you know, $1.2 million or we lose $3 million in that month or whatever, whatever, whatever the number might be. Uh, it, it's, I don't want to hear it because you're not being relevant. If you're not relevant, if people aren't paying attention to you, you're going to get hurt because who knows? Uh, you, you can't tell me that if you live in Baltimore and it's uh, 38 degrees out uh, on a night game and uh, Shohei Otani's pitching tomorrow night and it's Tuesday, uh, if you're a baseball fan, you're going to go see that. Because, let's face it, baseball has arguably the best athlete in all of sports right now in Shohei Otani, and baseball is robbing us of the opportunity to see him, and many others like him. Roger, uh, you, well, you know, yeah, Roy, as I said at the top, I, 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 I've listened to these guys now for, what, the last 10 days, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing that. And uh, to me, it, it's uh, how many times can you write it in newspapers for a columnist? How many times can you do a show on MLB uh, like they do time and, and talk about the same thing over and over and over again 
which has relatively come up to nothing. Roger? Well, you're exactly right, Don, and, and, uh, and, and I agree with a number of your points, Roy. I disagree with some, but not, not in the sense of, of really uh, being, you know, overly uh, disagreeing. Uh, a couple of things. Number one, uh, I was listening to uh, uh, the mad dog Chris Russo today on Sirius XM, and he had some really uh, good points. He, he said for the players – to keep their mouths shut on on uh, uh, social media because he said all they're going to do is do damage to themselves. Let the commissioner take all the hits, okay, so that uh, the, the fans don't turn on the players. That was number one. Uh, and a couple of other points that he had is I think the, the players are greedy. I also think the owners are greedy. And uh, but I also he he had some really good points about the players do not really support the older players that are in need, and where are these players, these multi multi millionaire players that feel that the young player is getting shafted? Okay, I don't see the uh, MLB uh, PA uh, stepping up and talking about making contributions. Okay. And, and the other thing is, when you have uh, Scott Boros involved and you have the people that are involved for the players in this whole negotiation, I, I've never – well, I can't stand Scott Boros. I mean, he's out for himself. He doesn't care about anybody. He doesn't care about his players other than, the, in my opinion, other than get them all the money that he can. That's it. He doesn't care about the, the the future of Major League Baseball or anything, and I don't think the uh, the uh, head of the union does either. And he, it's strictly uh, you know out for uh, uh, today. And 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 you're right. I've always thought Major League Baseball does an absolute horrendous uh, uh, job in marketing. It all it's disgusting. And then when they say the commissioner come, came out, what, last year, the year before, and said Mike Proud has to do a better job of promoting himself. Hey, wait a minute. Look at what the NFL does as far as promotion goes. So, you know, I just – I think both sides, it's disgusting. Uh, I can tell you that when they had that uh, uh, strike that time and they didn't have the uh, World Series and it went into the next year, I lost interest in baseball – and nobody was any bigger fan than me of baseball, and it took me a long while to get back into it. And it's going to take a long while this time if this goes any length of time. And Roy, I'll let you respond to that before we go to something that's, uh, which is relevant, which is the National Hockey League right now, and certainly the Lightning and what's happening with Florida and the Lightning. We'll get to that, but I'll let you respond to Roger first. Yeah, uh, Roger, I, look, look um, you're not going to be alone in that camp that, uh, that loses interest off of this. The, the only thing that we've got, you know, baseball's got going for right now is that it's, it's spring training, or that's, that's, yeah. what that's what's being missed. You know, if something happens here in the next uh, week, uh, maybe even two, they could probably still save 162-game season. Certainly the players are going to ask to be paid for 162 games. And if baseball is smart, they'll figure out a way to play 162 games uh, if something happens quickly. But, um, and, and I understand your feeling about greed uh, with the players. Um, it's greed on both sides. But I will say oh, this, and I, and I also agree that, 
you know, a guy like Max Scherzer, who's making, you know, what, $30 million a year, um, you know, I, I, I do sort of wonder why players at that level aren't saying, hey, I'll take $28 million a year so that two other players can make another 500000 or something, you know? Like Tom um, Brady did, Roy. Exactly. But without a salary cap, I guess that incentive is not there. And, and I don't begrudge anybody making their money. I don't begrudge the owners making their money. But here's the issue, and this is a, here are the, here's one fact that um, might open your eyes a little bit in terms of greedy and where, how you can help to maybe possibly understand where the players are coming from. Uh, at, the, at the end of the last strike, uh, the, after the collective bargaining agreement was done, um, the, 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 the difference between what the owners took and the players took out of the entire revenue pie was 51.49. It's now 57.43. So in the last 16 years, I guess, or 20, 20 plus years, it has gone from being a, you know, in essence, a, a pretty even split of all, all of all revenues to what is now clearly an advantage for the owners. 57% of the revenues go to the owners. 43% of all revenues are going to players in terms of salary. That doesn't mean salaries are, you know, haven't gone up. They have. But obviously revenues have gone up, as have um, the, the, the value of franchises. So what part of what the players are trying to get back to is they're just trying to cut, you're just trying to bridge the gap a little bit. They went from being a, a 51-49 split on the low end of that to being on the low end of a 57-43 split. Well, let me you ask you this. See that, fi- and you can understand fi- why. Oh, I do. I do. But let me ask you this. Is the 57-43, uh, is the 57 net or gross? Uh, it's, all, it's all net. It's all net. But it's, so it's you after know, expenses. Or, yeah, this is, because this is the all. Players, I mean, this is, yeah. The players have no expenses well, to, to speak I'm of. Sorry. I'm, sorry, that, that, I'm sorry, that may be gross, but, but the bottom line is, of the, of the whole pie, 57% of, that mon- of the money that the league makes every year is going to the owners, and 43% is going to the players. And it used to be, so the players have, in essence, you know, lost 6% of all the revenues in the same time that the owners have expanded their take of the revenues, and the, and the players are just thinking, hey, we just want, want it to be a little bit more fair it used to be fifty-one forty-nine. We believe, you know, the game has grown uh, in terms of dollars, and they want to see the young players get a little bit more. And because uh, guys like Max Scherzer and and Trout and those guys, you know, uh, Juan Soto, Freeman, Freddie Freeman, they're they're not asking for for much more. They're, they know they're getting their money. And, and you know, the bottom line here is that the owners, the players, are trying to look out for the younger players because there has clearly been. Uh, a, a a a governor put on how quickly young players are getting to the major leagues, and part of that is due to the fact that player teams want to control the players' uh, salaries uh, for as long as possible, and that makes sense. But you know, Major League Baseball still is not necessarily promoting, and by promoting, I mean um, actually bringing them up to the major leagues. Some of their best young players. Um, you know, there's a good handful of guys, five, six good players, uh, who were supposed to come up a year ago and never did, in part because 
uh, or largely because the the, uh, the Major League Baseball didn't want to start the uh, the arbitration clock up. Well, and, well you're uh, right, and that's and, not and that happens with a lot of teams. You're exactly right about that. And the only reason I bring up the 57 uh, percent or the, because the players have no expense. Let's face it, relatively speaking. The, the owners have all the expenses, and then they have the minor leagues and everything else. And that's why you have to look at it. Is it 57% net after expenses are paid, or is it gross before expenses are paid? Uh, you know, I'm pretty and, sure and I don't know. Net. I don't know that answer. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's, 50%, it's 57% net. Um, because, you know, clearly, you know, Major League Baseball pays for a lot of stuff. But, but at the end of the day, uh, and again, look, I mean, you know, we're in here in Tampa. I, I'm in a what is, you know, even though it's the 11th largest television market, it's, you know, it's a, considered a small market team for franchise. I mean, we have watched with, in frustration here as the Rays have allowed, you know, very good players in their prime to get away because they don't want to pay a salary. Uh, you know, when they've got when you when you're a team spending sixty three million dollars on on your team, uh, you know it makes for some anxious moments when you're in a in the same division as the Red Sox and the Yankees. Now the Rays have certainly figured out how to remain competitive, and that's great. But uh, you know, teams like Pittsburgh have struggled, Kansas City has struggled, even though they won a World Series. And one of the great things about baseball is you play 162 games, and if you're good enough, you're going to continue to win. But uh, the bottom line here is that uh, the players just believe that they they just want to get a little bit more of uh, of the pie. They used to get a a bigger piece of it. They believe they they earn it because let's say and here's the other thing, you know the players are the, are the show. I, I mean I can't name 32 owners, much less tell you that I want to go see one or right. talk to one. Um, I, I, I we all watch baseball for the players, and they are they are the product. This is what's different about you know, sports as opposed to almost any other business is that this is the product. This is what we're going to see. Um, it's just like a movie. You know, you, you pay to see Brad Pitt. Uh, you pay to see, uh, you know, stars. Um, and, and those stars are going to get a little bit more uh, than, than, the, than the guy who's, you know, just a, an extra. So, and that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, I will say this. One of the other things, Don, you can comment on this. We've talked about it before. One of the things uh, Chris said was that uh, they should never have had the uh, teams in Florida. And, and I think that that's a good point. And, and he also pointed out what we've talked about so many times, that they, they built that new stadium for the Marlins in the wrong place. But I don't know if they had built it someplace else, whether the Marlins would uh, – fans would flock to it. Or number one, and how about uh, – uh, Derek G- Jeter uh, leaving the organization. I was just going to say that, Roger. That was my whole point in the beginning. Derek Jeter left the organization even though he owned 2%. He was a managing partner. And uh, he left because the owner doesn't want to spend the money. He said, my, yeah. my concept when I came here to be a part of this organization was to win. And obviously, right. if you're not going to spend money and you don't care about improving your club, you're not going to win. And I'm not going to be a part of it. I think Jeter hit it right on the head. Oh, he did. He did, yeah. And that, and that, hey, I, that I, departure came at a very interesting time, obviously, with these negotiations going. I mean, it just further, uh, you know, it's an exclamation point to me on the whole idea that, you know, are the owners really in this to win? Some aren't. 
and 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 you know they're they're in it for the money. Which again, I look understand. at the NFL, I, Roy. Look at all the investigations now that are coming out about teams in the NFL and paying. Yeah, the not only that, Roger, but look lose. at Baltimore and Pittsburgh. Baltimore and Pittsburgh, yeah. all they do is take the money. They don't. Yeah. They're not going to win anything. All they do is the end of the season. Give me my fair share, and I'll call. I'll break even, and that's enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, uh, there's some there's some problems inherent in uh, you know within ownership, and I and I think what probably has to be done here is that you know I think at some point maybe the uh, the commissioners uh, and and the heads of the leagues have to get together and say, look, you know we're going to hold these owners accountable. Uh, you can own a franchise, but we are the league, and as a league, everybody needs to be attempt to be competitive, and that's why uh, actually a salary floor would uh would actually be a good thing as a you know and if you have to take a salary cap along with it well then you get a salary cap along with it and i think that's one right. thing the players are being a little bit short-sighted on themselves you know right. if you got a salary exactly cap of 280 right. million dollars uh good and if you got a salary but you know there, the problem is right now you got three four five teams in the in major league baseball spending less than 70 million dollars that's not good and uh right. they're, they're clearly you know one of them is competitive but Many are not, and they're, they're happy not being competitive, and that's a problem. Well, the other so thing let's is go the the national, let's go to the National Hockey League for a minute because we're coming into the real season of the National Hockey League. Yeah, I mean, all this other stuff is pretty much in the back door. But, I mean, uh, you, you look at what right now Tampa Bay. And, and, Roy, you followed Tampa Bay since the first time they uh, put skates on down there in Tampa, Florida. And uh, who would have thought that Tampa Bay and Florida would be the two top teams in the Atlantic Division at any time, not just this year or last year, any time. And yet they are the two top teams. And, in fact, the whole Atlantic Division is pretty difficult. And, uh, you know, so to me, hockey becomes much more relevant over the next few weeks as we look forward to the playoffs. Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. And, uh, you know, I, I gotta give, you got to give kudos, I think, to the NHL. A great showcase last uh, Saturday uh, with Tampa Bay and Nashville. Again, two non-traditional markets uh, playing an outdoor game and giving you everything that a, a hockey fan could want in a game, including a fight. Um, you know, great uh, star scoring goals, great goaltending, uh, power plays, uh, you know, just dynamic play throughout, close game, uh, physical play. Uh, it was good. And, you know, the, again, the Lightning came out on top and uh, – uh, you know, here, here they are schooling the Senators again last night. Look, it's it's amazing what uh, what's happened here. But you know, uh, you can tell that in hockey, at least, uh, teams want to win. And I don't think anybody's tanking in the NHL right now. You got some teams that clearly aren't very good. Um, but some of those teams that have struggled in in the last couple of years, teams like you know, think about L.A., Anaheim, um, Buffalo. Uh, they're doing everything they can to, to, to try to win. And, uh, yeah, the Lightning are the uh, still the, uh, the, the the gem of the league for sure. But it's really interesting that Florida is right there with them, at least as good. And uh, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, you're right. The, the Atlantic Division, um, e- extremely competitive. Because, again, you can make an argument that Carolina is the third best team in the NHL. Uh, Toronto thinks it's the best team in the NHL. I, w- I won't say that, but uh, – they think they are, and um, you know we'll uh, we'll see. We're right. The playoffs are going to be exceptionally good, uh, as they always are in the NHL. Roy, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you very much for a terrific first half hour. Uh, we sort of Terrific's touched on so many different 
so many different things. Roy, thank you so very much. Always uh, a pleasure of mine to be with you guys. Thanks for having me, uh, guys. Uh, Roy, have a great week. Hopefully we might have a settlement by the time we have a show next week. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Keep our fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah. Hall of Fame writer, Hall of Fame, I guess Hall of Fame broadcaster, too. He does a radio show. He does a television show. He works with the Philadelphia Eagles. He's a playwright. Wrote the Tommy McDonald uh, play, which uh, Roger seen a couple of times, which is we talked about last time that Ray Zittinger was on with us. And, uh, Ray, first of all, it's great to have you back with us and uh, all the accolades we could pass in your direction. But uh, fall right now is uh, coming up to the draft, uh, the Eagles. Uh, some of your thoughts, uh, first of all, on the Eagles as you cover them every day, day in and day out. Yeah, well, the um, season was uh, surprisingly good. You know, I mean, I was not one of those uh, who thought they were they were going to go to the postseason. I really wasn't. Um, probably the people that that thought they were, you could probably count them on one hand. Uh, but they got there. I mean, they were got in as a seventh seed, but they got there. And uh, you know, and I, I thought on the whole played pretty well. You know, for a team that was going with a quarterback who was little more than a rookie, and you know, tr- a true rookie head coach, and a lot of new coaches on the coaching staff. I mean, it, there was a lot of change and a lot of change over. Uh, but you know, overall, I mean, after got off to a pretty bumpy start at two and five, but once they hit their stride, they played some pretty good football and, you know, now they come into a, a very, very critical off season. You know, they've got, uh, they're coming into this draft. They've got 10 overall picks, three of them in the first round, and they got a real opportunity to make some strides. Roger, I'll let you jump in right there. Yeah. Ray, uh, always great to have you and, uh, always listen to you. I wanted to know, were you in the jury box when Judge Cataldi announced the decision of Russell Wilson to be the Eagles quarterback? Uh, no, I was not. Uh, I was. <laughs> I was not in the jury box, nor was I consulted on that. Um, well, I guess I, I guess that's not really true. I mean, they did ask my opinion on that. Uh, I, I, you know, they did ask my opinion on that. They asked pretty much everybody's opinion, but I, I knew where Angelo was coming from. I knew, you know, I knew he was, I, I knew he was, I knew he was leaning towards the, uh, you know, making the big splash and going for, and going for Russell Wilson. And he's not alone. I, I think if you probably, um, if you probably did a man on the street here in Philadelphia and just, uh, you know, stood at the corner of Broad and Vine and grabbed everybody, you know, that went by and asked them their opinion, they, they, they would probably say that. You know, they would probably say, "Let's go get the veteran quarterback." I wouldn't. You know, I would, I would, uh, I would ride with uh, Jalen Hurts for another year and see, um, and see how much he can grow. Uh, but uh, I do know, yeah, I, I really do think if you took the pulse of the town, probably most people would probably be with Angelo on that decision. Yeah, Ray. Uh, question I'm about the you. draft coming up. You mentioned they have three choices in the first round. Uh, a lot of uh, sentiment leads toward. They got to get a they got to get a, a pass rushing in. Uh, are they going to trade some of those draft choices to move around in the draft and get somebody that's going to be a a really legitimate pass rusher, or do you think they should go in another direction? Oh no, I think that's I think you put your finger right on it. I, I um, they have they have three picks. They got fifteen, sixteen, and nineteen. Uh, and um, I mean, I would be perfectly happy if they just stayed right there and used all three picks. And, uh, you know, addressed each level of the defense. You know, draft a, a defensive end, as you said, a pass rusher. Uh, bring in a linebacker who can actually play. Uh, and, uh, and, 
and then go get a defensive back, either a corner or a safety, whoever's the best guy on your board. I try and get one impact player at each level of the defense. Uh, and uh, you can – I mean, they're they in a position where if they, dra- if they do the right thing in this draft, they could totally change the face of that defense in one off season. I mean, they really could. I mean, it's, it, you saw last year what a difference Micah Parsons made. One player, Micah Parsons made in Dallas. Uh, well, you got a chance to go get three of them this year. And uh, you could take this defense from, you know, being a team that finished 31st in the league in sacks and make them a team that can actually make quarterbacks uh, sweat a little bit. So I, that, that's, how, that's what I would do. I would not, you know, I know there are a lot of people that say, oh, package all those picks and go trade them for a quarterback. Uh, and I wouldn't. I mean, I would, I would take advantage of this to uh, take advantage of this opportunity to, you know, make this defense younger, faster, and more physical. Because I think that that's, uh, you know, that's where the greatest need is on this team. Ray, all you got to do is look at the Rams and what they did with their defense and what kind of pressure they put on right into the Super Bowl. Roy, oh, sure. <laughs> oh, sure. I, and, and, the I, same, and the same thing and the same thing the year before with the Buccaneers. I mean, that's, right. you know, Patrick, Patrick Mahomes goes into that playoff, goes into the Super Bowl, and, you know, he's the most dynamic playmaking quarterback in football, great player, no question about that. Uh, but you saw, I mean, you know, that, that Tampa Bay defense never gave him a chance, you know, and they, and they made Patrick Mahomes look pretty ordinary. And that's, you know, that's, that, that's where the game is right now. I mean, that's, you know, you got, you got a lot of really good quarterbacks now, but, you know, you, you got to get people and get pressure on them and force them into making mistakes. If they, if you, if you can't get to the quarterback in today's NFL, you simply can't win. Absolutely. Roger, you're up. I was reading Howie Roseman's transcript of his press conference and uh, talking about the linebackers, which we talked about before. And I know you talked about it and, and Seth talks about it all the time. And mm-hmm. he was saying, well, you, you, you heard uh, what Howie said, and he was saying that he said, well, Jim Schwartz's defense was totally different. It wasn't based on uh, linebackers so much. No. And now, uh, you know, the new uh, coordinator – uh, is a, a totally different. Well, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, that's what I would go for and with uh, all three of those picks, or the defense. Yeah, I would. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've, we've talked about it endlessly in, in, in Philadelphia, uh, is the fact that this team has not used a first-round draft pick on a linebacker since, since Jerry Robinson. <laughs> Jerry Robinson. Yeah. In 1979, I mean that just—I mean that just on its face sounds ridiculous, but but that's but that's the truth. Uh, and this team hasn't put a whole lot of stock in that position, and uh, it's really gotten progressively even more so um, since you know during the, the Jeff Lurie Joe Banner days, because you know they based their whole uh, team construct on the idea of economics and where they were going to spend their money. And uh, and I understand that. I mean, it is a salary cap league, but you know they they just uh, they actually put like uh, a chart up and you know where they where they were going to spend their money and they were going to spend their money on pa- on uh, defensive ends, pass rushers, uh, and cornerbacks. You know, it'd be, it'd be pass rushers number one, corners number two, uh, then defensive tackles number three. Uh, and then, you know, safeties, and then, you know, and then linebackers came in last. And, you know, they were going to spend their money and their resources on those other positions, and then they figured, you know, with the, with the way the game was trending, and they're not necessarily wrong in saying this, but the way the game's trending now, 
you know, in, in a lot of defensive systems, linebackers aren't on the field that much. Everybody's playing nickel and dime defenses, or they're playing, you know, or sometimes in some cases they're playing with two linebackers, in some cases one, in some cases none. Um, and so linebackers have been have been sort of phased out of a lot of defenses, and Schwartz certainly was subscribed to that. I don't. I mean, if you mm-hmm. have, I mean, if if you have players that are really good at the linebacker position, you see them every week in the NFL making plays and and winning games. I mean, Devin White in Tampa Bay is a very good example. Micah Parsons last year, we mentioned him already. What he did in Dallas. If you get, you know, if you if you just want to get a bunch of sluggos, I mean, a bunch of guys that are like glorified special teams guys, and put them out there and and say that they're not making difference in games. Well, I guess they're not. But that's, t- that's just telling me it's not that linebackers don't matter. It's just telling me your linebackers don't matter. You know, go, right. go get go get real good ones. <laughs> or if you look around, if you look around the league a lot and you watch you watch enough tape, I mean, every week you see linebackers making plays to change games and win games. So the right guys can be difference makers. And you know, I've I've thought that that position was got shortchanged in this organization for way too long. And you know, they got an opportunity this year with all of these picks and a lot of premium picks and also a lot of really good linebackers available in this draft. You know, I think this is a good time to change that philosophy. Ray, a question out of left field. You work with a, on your TV show, post-game show, pre-game show, and so forth. Uh, you work with a really outstanding linebackers in football. This, first of all, does he have any interest in becoming a defense coordinator? I mean, every game – uh, he puts his finger right on the pulse of what's wrong, and, and I, I think he does a terrific job. No, he does. I don't know whether he'd have it. Does he have any interest in re- coaching? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Um, um, he and I have had that discussion many times uh, over the years. Um, you know, we've worked together now, geez, I guess five, six years now. Um, and I've, uh, you know, and we, we sit together and we watch the games, and I'm um, – um, he, he, I'm, I'm just never cease to be amazed at how perceptive and how smart he is about football. I mean, we all, we all know what a great player he was, uh, right. and what a, what a, you know, and what a key player he was on those Buddy Ryan defenses. Um, and, uh, and, but a lot of it, uh, I, I don't know that people understand, or even I really didn't understand until I actually sat and watched games with him about how smart he was about football and how on top of things he was and how quickly he sees things and. You know, and then, no, that's not going to work. They they can't do that. They have to do this. And or uh oh, here they're coming out in this formation. Watch, this is what they're going to run right here. And he's always right. And um, I mean, his football IQ is really off the charts. And uh, I said to him right from the first year, and and each year after that, I said, you know, Seth, you know, you're I, I love working with you, and uh, but to be honest, you're wasting your time. Just just sitting here in the TV studio, you should be coaching this game. <laughs> you really should. And and for several years there, he said, you know, uh, I you know, coaching's a tough life. You know, coaches never go home. They never see their families. Uh, right. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. You know, I, I just don't think I'd be happy doing that. And I, I kind of let it go. Okay, fine. That's, that's if that's how you feel. I understand it. Coaching really isn't for everybody. But last year, no, I'm sorry, the year before last. Um, I asked him that. I said that again. I said, you know, Seth, you should be coaching. He said, you know what? He said, I'm ready now because his family has grown. His kids are away. They're at school. Uh, and now he's in a situation where he feels like he could do that. And now he wants to do that. And he knows at his age, you know, if he doesn't do it soon, it's going to pass him by. So, he, right. you know, he said, he said 
you know, two years ago, he said, if the right opportunity came along and somebody offered me a chance to, to be a coach in the, in the NFL, uh, I would do it now. And so um, <laughs> it's, it's funny, last year after, uh, after Peterson got fired and they basically cleaned house with the coaching staff, um, I, sent the, I sent Howie Roseman an email. And uh, I said, hey, listen, you know, look, you know, far be it from me to tell you what, how to run your football team. But uh, I know you're going to have to re- rebuild our whole coaching staff here. Do yourself a favor and just talk to Seth Joyner. Just, I'm, I'm not saying you got to hire him, but before you hire a linebacker coach, bring him, bring him in and talk to him. Um, and, and I think you'll, I, I think you'll, you'll recognize that this is a guy that a, a should be coaching in the National Football League, and B would be a perfect fit in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I put it out there. Did he get Roger? interviewed? Uh, no. <laughs> no. No. I, I asked, I, I asked um, I, in fact, I asked, I told Seth later on about it. Uh, and I said, did they ever call you? And he said no. no. So, um, you know, I put it out there. I tried. But yeah. I, really do, hey. I really do think, I, I I really do think, and it's not just, it goes beyond friendship. I mean, we're friends. There's no question about that. But, you know, I have a lot of friends, and I'm not calling up NFL teams and saying hire them as coaches. I would only do that if I thought the guy really could do the job. And I have no question that Seth Joyner could come in and do the job. Oh, well, I also think uh, that Seth, during the course of the TV show, is, uh, is not only critical to players or the coaches, but he's also critical of management. I mean, he puts it all out on the line. And, um, you know, you've got to have pretty thick skin if you're in management and you have somebody that disagrees with you and you're willing to interview him and bring him in as a coach because you think he's got that kind of ability. But you have to have that kind of personality that will do that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, um, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt to just talk to him, you know. Right. It no, wouldn't no. hurt to talk to him. Uh, and, uh, and see, I, you know, I, and he, and he kind of said that, you know, when I took, when he didn't know that I sent the email, he didn't know that I, I had reached out on his behalf. Um, and you know, he said, you know, he, he said, I, and his honest, his honest answer is, I think I scare them. You know, I think mm-hmm. I scare them. You know, they're, they're aware of, of my personality. You know, they're aware of how outspoken I am. You know, they're right. aware. Of the, they're they're aware of the fact that uh, you know I'm a straight shooter. If somebody asks me a direct question, I'm going to give them a direct answer. If if something's wrong, I'm going to say that it's wrong. Um, some organizations can live with that, and some can't. Uh, and you know, and he said, you know, I, I I actually would have been surprised if the Eagles would have contacted me. I will say this: um, a couple of years ago, we did a, uh, a a charity event in Philadelphia. Uh, and a whole bunch of people showed up, and it was it was it was an idea was it was a, a, a let's talk football night, and so on the on the stage it was Dick Vermeil, it was me, and it was Seth Joyner, uh, and for one hour we just talked football with the audience, answered mm-hmm. questions, did Q and A. There was a black wow. there was a blackboard there, and you know they were up there X and Oing it and all that kind of stuff, um, and it was terrific. I mean it was great, uh, and at the end of the night uh, I was leaving. I, I was leaving the place, and I, Dick, Dick Vermeil and I were walking out together. And Dick Vermeil said to me, you know, he said, that guy is really impressive. And he said, if I was still coaching a team right now, I would hire him in 10 seconds. There you go. I Vermeil agree. Said. And so, yeah, and you he's know, that kind I, of guy. 
Yeah, and, and, yeah. Dick, and Dick Vermeil is, is is merely in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So I think I think he knows a good coach when he sees one. And that one night of watching Seth up at the blackboard talking about his philosophy of football, that was exactly what Dick said to me. He said, I would hire that guy in 10 seconds. And well, I, you know, he's, I agree with he's him. A buddy, he's a buddy guy, Ray, you know, buddy Ryan guy who was not afraid to uh, talk about the owner, the guy that lives in France. I mean, right. You know, and Don knows him because – of the uh, Holtz and the Buddy Ryan show at the Ribbit. Uh, Don, you had him every week, and, and, and Buddy was the same way. And I guess Seth is a chip off the old block in many ways. Yeah, he is. I mean, he, he, he really is. Um, you know, the one thing that Seth would – the one problem he would have is um, – and he, he encountered this. He, did, he spent one summer when Rex Ryan, when Buddy's son Rex, was coaching mm-hmm. the Bills. Um, he invited Seth up to the Bills training camp for the summer to uh, be like an assistant assistant to the linebacker coach, just to get a just to get a taste of it, just to get around it and see how he liked it. And uh, so Seth spent the summer up there with the Bills, and uh, he said he really liked it. That's what kind of whet his appetite for for the, for the idea of mm, you know maybe this is for me. But the, but we talked about it, and the one thing he said was he said the one thing that would drive me crazy. Um, is 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 the modern player? Are they are yes. these kids that are playing in the NFL today? He said that I would, you know, I, I was working with these guys and I was showing them, I was correcting them and showing them things they were doing wrong and saying, no, 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 that's wrong. You should do it this way. Uh, and players would say to him, no, 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 that's no. I, I, I've done it this way my whole life. I, I, I I'm going to keep doing it this way. Uh, and he said that just drove me crazy. You know, and he said there was one time he was doing it with one of the linebackers, and the guy was, he was his stance was just flat out wrong. And Seth said, "You're, you're, you know, you're going to be, you're the way you're standing, you're going to be, you're a step behind before the ball's even snapped." And he was trying to, he's trying to correct him, and Rex came over and took Seth aside, and said, eh, "Let him do it the way he wants to do it. You know, if that's that's wow. the way, if that's the way, if that's the way he's comfortable, let him do it that way." And and Seth that said, "I told Rex," and Seth and Seth said, "I told Rex," I said. You know, your father would have never let me get away with that. You know, because mm-hmm. your father was a football coach, and that's what coaches right. are for. It's to instruct players and, and teach them the right way to do things and make it better. And, you know, that's what says that's the thing that frustrates me now. He said, he said Rex knows. He said Rex knows because he's seen his father coach often enough, but he's trying to straddle that middle ground between the way I know this game should be coached but the way I have to teach it with the modern player. And Seth said that's, that would be the hardest part for me. Because I, you know, I'm I'm going to insist that guys do things the right way, and uh, I can make them all better. But they, but I have to have the support of the coaching staff to, and the management to let me do the job the way I want to do it. Absolutely. Roger? Well, I would just say, Ray, I'm I'm substitute teaching, and I have to tell you, it, what a difference in the young person today, middle school and high school. I had all high school kids today. And uh, I mean, mainly juniors. And there's such a difference between a junior and a freshman. I mean, in maturity, I mean, it's just unbelievable. But I was talking to one of the kids that's on the football team. And I asked him, I said, what was your record? The kid didn't know. <laughs> right. He played the whole season, you know, and, and had no idea what, the, what his record was. Yeah, uh, I think they're they're more interested in in playing with their phones and electronic games and everything. That's the problem today. Oh yeah, yeah, 
He probably he probably he probably has a better idea of what his record what his Madden team's record is than the, than the <laughs> team he right. really plays for. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> right. <laughs> How about the NFL East? So they uh, the Giants have just been horrible now for for so long a period of time. Dallas came back a little bit this year. Maybe should have gone a step or so further. Didn't didn't quite get there. Uh, Washington's still struggling. The Eagles uh, got there on the last game of the season. Uh, how do you? Because everybody always looked to the National Football League East as a, a, a conference they didn't want to play a team in. Right, right. Well, it's not what it used to be. <laughs> you know, we were, you know, <laughs> Say that you again. and I, yeah, you and I, you and I remember the days when the NFC East was the uh, was the true power of football. I mean, it was right. exactly. you know, every year. You know, every, I mean, every year in the in the 70s and the 80s, uh, it was generally the team from the East that came out of the NFC. Uh, and went into the Super Bowl and just pounded the AFC team into the ground, <laughs> you know. And that was, you know, and that wasn't just one year; that was pretty much every year. But it's it's no surprise. I mean, in, in that stretch that we're talking about, you know, the NFC East had, you know, Joe Gibbs was coaching in Washington; he's a Hall of Famer. Bill Parcells was coaching the Giants; he's a Hall of Famer. You know, Tom Landry's coaching the Cowboys; he's a Hall of Famer. He was followed by Jimmy Johnson, who's a Hall of Famer, and Dick Vermeil was coaching the Eagles, and he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, you had. All Hall. Of, I don't know if there's ever been a. I don't know if there's ever been a division like that, where every team was coached by a guy who was who was a Hall of Fame coach. And if you have the, that kind of leadership at the top, you're gonna have you're gonna have good football. You're gonna have good solid football teams year after year. And they were. And that was why it was great football to watch. And we had the we had the the, the, the privilege of of watching that division play for for a decade. Absolutely, and teams, best of you know, the and, best. And yeah, and see teams that came out every every week prepared. They came out uh, motivated, uh, and they came out to take no prisoners. And you know, it was it was it was really it was really really great. And you know, now it's the opposite extreme. Now the NFC East is a joke, and it has been a joke for uh, you know a good long while now. Um, I have a feeling I I may be proven wrong on this, but I I think the Giants are I think the Giants are on the right path here. I really do. I I uh, you know I, I think Joe Shane, from everything I've heard, uh, is a really smart guy. Uh, and uh, you know, Gittleman was a bad general manager, and 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 took a bad situation and made it worse. Um, mm-hmm. I think Shane. I think Shane's going to. I think Shane is a is a smart young guy who knows personnel and seems to have a pretty good idea of uh, of, of what he's doing. So I think they're going to have. I think they're going to draft better and be better in free agency. Um, and uh, Brian Dable is is a good coach. I mean, you look at what he did with Josh Allen up in Buffalo. You see that if he can have, right. if he can have, if he can have half that much success, um, with, uh, with the quarterback they have now, um, you know, Dan, uh, Danny Jones, if they can, if he can have half as much success, uh, that would be good. And then, you know, and then I thought they, I thought they did got a great hire in Wink Martindale, who's going to coordinate mm-hmm. the defense. I mean, he's he's been one of the better defensive coordinators in football for a while now. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that he's he, that he left Baltimore, but he was. Uh, I think it was a smart move snapping him up. So I, I, I look at the people that are calling the shots with the Giants right now, and uh, I think they finally. I think they finally have some guys in place that uh, can sort of turn that ship around. Now Washington, I don't know. Washington, I, you know, their, their, their problems go all the way up to the top. I think until Dan right. Snyder sells that team, I think they're probably going to be what they are. Um, and you know, the Eagles are I mean, the Eagles are a team that's they, you know, they just right now they're a little short on players. You know, they've got I think I think Sirianni showed me that he can coach a little bit last year. 
Uh, and I think they've got a really good offensive line. Um, and, you know, Devontae Smith's a really good receiver. I mean, they've got some players, but they're just a little short right now. Uh, but I think they're moving in the right direction. But I do, I do have a feeling that the Giants um, – I mean, it won't happen overnight, but I think the Giants have finally started to uh, get, their, get their house in order. Roger? Well, I, you know, I've talked about the uh, Georgia uh, Bulldogs, Ray, and I remember when the Saturday show, uh, Glenn was saying to you, as he'd be standing outside the uh, Bulldogs locker room, and as each one of the uh, players eligible, he'd say, I'll take you, and then yeah. you, and you. I remember that conversation. And yeah, that was, that was what, what I said. No, that was what I said. <laughs> oh, that was what I said. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You said that to Greg. To Glenn. Yeah. That's, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. That, that that was me. I said I said I would I, I said I would be standing outside the dormitory in Athens, Georgia, and uh, I'd say I'd say okay, you 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 guys come with me. That's right. <laughs> because that and, was, and you can take uh, a few from Alabama too, Ray. That's really true. I, I thought that um, uh, I, I really thought the Georgia defense was exceptional. Uh, I mean, it was yeah. it it might be it might be the best college defense I've ever seen. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were really really good, and they had guys who I mean, you looked at them and they were to me they were NFL players playing on Saturday. I mean, they really mm-hmm. were. And uh, um, there's going to be I mean, I was just going over my draft my, my draft stuff the other night, and uh, I have seven Georgia guys go, seven Georgia defensive players going in the first two rounds. Um, now that may be, I may be a little biased because of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a Georgia guy. I mean, they won me mm-hmm. over this year. I, I really liked them. And so maybe, maybe I'm being a little overindulgent by saying seven in the first two rounds, but I honestly don't think it's a stretch. I honestly don't think it's a stretch. I think those guys are that good. And you get, you get guys like, uh, Nicobe Dean, for example, I mean, he's just a, uh, just a great player. I mean, I, I know there's going to be right now they're out in Indianapolis and, you know, by the end of this week, you know, you're probably going to start hearing stories. Oh, geez, I, I don't know. He, he measured, you know, five eleven and three quarters inches. You know, you know, and he's not, he's not. His uh, vertical you know, jump was only four feet. Yeah, I mean, yeah no, really. I mean, this is what, this is what you're going. This is what you're going to get. I mean, this is what you're going to get because I, I know, I you know, I know he was listed at six one or whatever, but he's not. I mean, he very well may be five eleven and a half. But I mean, he's five eleven and a half a football player. I'll tell you that much. And uh, you know, and I, I know, you know, I've had these same discussions with scouts over the years. I mean, listen, I had this discussion with a bunch of scouts when Ray Lewis was coming out of Miami, and I had a bunch of guys tell me he was too small. And that's why, and that's why, that's why Ray Lewis fell to what was he, twenty third or twenty fourth in the first round? I mean, because everybody said, you know, he just, you know, he, Ray measured like five eleven and a half or something, and they just thought that was too small. And I, I said, did you guys like ever watch the tape? I mean, did you ever like put the tape on and watch this guy play? Are you kidding me? You'd ra- you'd rather draft a six foot two guy that can't move just because he's six <laughs> feet two than a guy who's who's on top of the football. Every single play. I mean, it, it just makes right. no sense. But the, but that same kind of conversation is going on in Indianapolis, like right now. I mean, there are guys that are sitting in a room right now making those same kind of determinants. There's guys in, in, in rooms right now that are talking about the fact that um, uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny Pickett's hands are too small. You know, forget the fact he's the best quarterback <laughs> in the draft. His hands are too small. The same, they were having the same discussion. Seriously, they were having the same discussion two years ago about Joe Burrow. They said Joe Burrow's hands were too small. Yeah. Correct. Well, yeah. So, 
you know, and, and when Aaron Donald came out of when Aaron Donald came out of pit, they said he was too small. Uh, so, I mean, that that's why the combine. I mean, sometimes these guys get so deep into the woods here that they can't see the trees, and uh, um, that that's why I, I kind of chuckle at the combine. Everybody gets all. Nobody can. Everybody's. They sit by. They sit by the TV and they watch these guys do all these drills and the cone drills and the, and the vertical leaps and all. And to me, I just laugh. I just say, you know, if you want to find a football player, put the tape on. You know, put the tape on of a Georgia Alabama game. That's where you'll find football players. Watch them play football. Well, I want to ask you. What about you know the kid? Uh, what's uh, the kid Jordan, the uh, defensive lineman, the. Um, what I respect about him is that he could have gone last year and he came right. back to win a national championship and he won. I, right. I think that says a lot about the character of the young man. Yeah, I def I agree. Uh, I agree. I mean, he, he certainly could have come out uh, and he did and he came back for, for the sole purpose of, he said, you know, I, I want to win a national championship. I think we can do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he would have been, listen, he would have been a first round pick last year. Um, mm-hmm. but he, he, you know, he said, that's, you know, I, I want to stay here. I, th- I think we can win a national championship last year. He came back and played and he did. Uh, and he was great. I mean, he was a big reason why they won the national championship. So I, I really respect that. Um, and that's, you know, that kind of thing, you kind of saw it all through their, their team. I mean, their team played, uh, with a real sense of purpose all season. I mean, they, um, I mean, that was really something. I mean, they got they got thumped in the SEC title game. I mean, they really mm-hmm. did. I, I think they, you know, I think they were a little overconfident. You know, I think that they, you know, they had played so well all year. Um, they had heard the people say, you know, this isn't a great Alabama team, and and I think they I think they believed it. <laughs> and then they they did the one thing you can never afford to do, which is you took a you took a Nick Saban team lightly. And they mm-hmm. paid the price for it. So, but when everybody said, "Well, you know, they certainly can't come back," and if if they have to play them again, they won't. And I said, "No, no, no. If they play them again, they'll beat them mm-hmm. uh, because they weren't going to make that mistake twice." And they, man for man, they were a better team than Bama. They really were, uh, and they were not going to lose to them twice. I was very confident that when they played, when they rematched in the actual championship game, that they would that they would win it because they were that good. Um, but now that you know, now that you've got a bunch of these guys coming into the NFL, um, you're going to see a whole bunch of them get drafted early. And like I said, I have seven going in the first two rounds. I don't think I'm going to miss by much. I think that I think that they I think they are that good, and I think it's going to be demonstrated on draft night. And I think it's going to be demonstrated in the fall when they start playing for real. I like your statement earlier. If you want to see a football player, look at football. Don't don't look don't look what's happening in Indianapolis. Although I will say this, the National Football League is always making changes. Now tell me this, Ray. After starting the the whole program, what, twenty five years ago, now all of a sudden the National Football League cities are gonna bid who's gonna who's gonna start these uh summer training camps. I mean I never why would they do that? Indianapolis has had it since day one. Right, right. Um, you mean that they're they're going to start moving the uh, the combine around? Yeah, yeah, they're going to start. But well, I think they what three? Uh, I think I think they named three cities. But you have to bid on it. I understand. I may be wrong. That's all. I'm asking you. But I, the way I looked at it, you had a bid on whether you wanted to have it in your in your facility. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly on what basis it's going to be chosen, but I do know that starting next year, they are going to do that. Um, it's just an extension of like the success that they've had with the NFL draft. 
You know, yeah. it used to be the NFL draft was always held up, up in New York. And right. then they got the idea of, well, hey, you know what, why don't we just take the draft and move it to other cities? And, uh, you know, we can uh, have great success. We can market it. We can sell more ads and, you know, all that kind of run. stuff. It's been a home run. And, and it's been, it was been a huge success, and now everybody wants it. And so they just decided, well, what the heck? I mean, it was so successful moving the draft around. Why don't we just start moving the combine around? I mean, everybody uh, – I, I, I sort of get a laugh out of the TV ratings that people – I mean, the number of the millions of people that watch these guys, you know, running around in T-shirts and shorts. I mean, I find it kind of laughable. But, I mean, uh, they, get big, they get bigger numbers for the, for the NFL combine than they do, like, NBA regular season games. <laughs> Before we let Ray go, Roger, go back over go back over our story of of uh, the last time Ray was on, and of course many times when we've talked to him about the origin of his play. I, I think a lot of people that probably were not with us the last time are with us now, and uh, it's really a very interesting interesting story about Tommy McDonald and Ray Didiger. So Roger, lead us into it. Well, I, I, it was a uh, Tommy and me, a, a great play. It's played for several years. It played again last summer. And uh, I know that uh, I saw it, like you said, I th- well, twice, I think, I know of. And the first time was with Dan Baker. And uh, we were down there at the, the, uh, that uh, theater that's uh, underneath the Ben Franklin Bridge. Yeah. And when we're driving up uh, at Columbus Boulevard, Dan, Dan said, do you have any idea where this place is? I said, I have no idea. I got the, I got the address and GPS, you know, <laughs> and it was great. And it was it was very special. I guess that was the first year you had it, wasn't it, when it was there? Yeah, uh, I think, yes, it was the first year. It was 2016. Uh, yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, that theater is called the Fringe Arts Theater. And it's right. It is. You're right on. It's right on Columbus Boulevard or the old Delaware Avenue. Right. It is. Lit- is literally under the Ben Franklin Bridge. Right. Um, but Ray, talk we, about the origin. How you all got started doing this, and, and uh, how it became sort of a, a life mission for you. Well, yeah. Uh, it's it's the story of me and Tommy McDonald, uh, and uh, the, the the great Eagles receiver from the '50s. He was he was my boyhood hero. Uh, when I was going to Eagles games with my parents, uh, he was he was my favorite player, and uh, we used to go up to Eagles training camp, which was then in Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, and we used to go up there. My dad would take his two weeks of summer vacation, and we would go up to Hershey and would watch the Eagles practice for two weeks. That was summer vacation, uh, and back in those days, you know, there were no there weren't that many people that went to. There went to training camp. I mean, you know, the, the so there was no security guards. There were no fences. There was nobody saying you can't stand here. You can't walk there. Uh, I mean, I I would literally stand at the locker room door and wait for the players to come out. I'd wait for Tommy to come out. And uh, you know, the very first day, I got his autograph. And uh, you know, and then he said to me, he said, uh, well, he said, you want to walk with me? He said, here, carry my helmet. And uh, oh, so wow. he handed he handed me his helmet, and I walked with him to the practice field. And we repeated that every day for the whole two weeks that I was there. And then each summer we went back and each summer he would see me and he would give me his helmet. So we did for his whole seven years with the Eagles, you know, we did that. He's, we first met, I was a kid, little kid in elementary school and he was a rookie out of Oklahoma. And seven years later, he was an all pro and a world champion and I was in high school. So, you know, I watched him develop into a star and he watched me grow up and we actually developed this little friendship. He started calling me little brother and, 
um, it was really nice. And then, of course, the Eagles traded him, and uh, you know, and his career ended. And then, about the time that his career was ending, mine was beginning, and I got to become a sports writer, and I got into the business, and uh, I became a Hall of Fame voter, and I got in a position there where I could actually start on the from the inside trying to campaign and work to see to see Tommy get into Canton and uh uh and that's really what that's really what Tommy and me is about the the whole play is really kind of about it starts with the little boy and the and the player up in Hershey uh and then it goes to later on when I become a writer and you know and and I begin the campaign to try and get Tommy in the Hall of Fame and then the culmination of it is is in Canton when he finally does get elected he asks me to be his presenter and so you know the little kid from Hershey who carried his helmet winds up giving the speech on the steps of the Hall of Fame that gets his hero inducted. Um, it's a it's a it's just a really lovely story. I mean it's it's there's no other story that I know like it. It's really kind of unique. And uh, so I wrote it as a play. It was produced, uh, and as Roger said, I mean it it became tremendously successful. I mean it had you know the first run we sold out every performance. We brought it back the next year, sold out every performance. Uh, we've now taken it to two other theaters. We went to the Media Theater uh, in Media, sold out every show. And last mm-hmm. year, uh, and last year we took it to the Delaware Theater Company. Uh, and in a 400-seat theater, uh, we sold that out for three weeks. So, um, and it just—it's very funny. I'm having this conversation with you guys because just today uh, we signed the deal to to do Tommy and me not once but twice this year. We're going to do it at the—we're going to do it in April. Uh, at the Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope, which is a beautiful oh, theater, great. Wow. right oh, on the that's Delaware a great River. Theater. Yep. So we're going to be. That's a great theater. It is a great theater with a great history. I mean, you know, you look at the people, you know, Eli Wallach, Robert Redford, Grace Kelly. I mean, the great people that have performed there and the great shows that performed there. They reached out and they wanted us. We didn't go knocking on their door. They came looking for us. Uh, so great. we just we just signed on today. So we're going to be at the Bucks County Playhouse in April. And then we're and here's the one that's really exciting to me. Uh, I've always had this in the back of my mind, and I didn't know if we could pull it off. Um, but we're actually bringing the play to Hershey. <laughs> how oh, how wow. fitting is that? There's a there's a theater there's a beautiful there's a beautiful theater uh, in Hershey called the Hershey Theater, uh, and they heard about the play, and so they contacted us and we went up there and we talked and they're we're going to bring the play to Hershey in August. Um, to a, a magnificent 2,000 two thousand seat theater, uh, we're going to have we're going to put the play in there in August, and you know we're kind of bringing Tommy home. We're bringing the story back to where it all began. Well, you know, Roger, we'll let you finish up with Ray and let him uh, let him go. But I, I first of all, uh, Ray, thank you so very very much for another very very interesting part of our program. And Roger, we'll let you finish it off with Ray, and then we'll go to Mike Simzak. Sounds good, Ray. I, I wanted. I, I'm so glad to hear about this, uh, about these two places, uh, you know, new, uh, two theaters, because uh, my cousin and her husband uh, live in Princeton, and they go to the Bucks County Playhouse all the time. Okay. And, uh, so I know that uh, they'll be there to see it. That's number one. And my daughter, I lived right uh, there. I was in that Bucks County Playhouse a million times. I lived right. Oh. What? Twenty minutes from there. Oh. Oh, they're going to they're gonna pack that place, and I'm going to call my friend that lives in uh, in Washington Crossing because he's a big Eagles fan. He went to uh, uh, Lehigh with me. But the other thing is, I think that's fantastic in Hershey. And wait till I tell my daughter 
because she is an avid Eagles fan, and her husband's an av- avid uh, Steelers fan, and he played at Bucknell. So, okay. When and you know, Selens Grove isn't that far from Hershey, so uh, I know. I, I, and 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 I, you know, I think kids would enjoy this too because it started with you as a child. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's why my granddaughters, I think, will uh, will enjoy that too. And yeah, there's uh, no well, question. Pe- yeah, there's no question. People often ask me, "Is this place suitable for children?" Because you always have to ask about theater. You don't yeah. know. Uh, and right. I say, no, right. it's more. Th- it's more than suitable for kids. This is a play that kids should see because it, re- yes. it, re- it, re- it really is football told through the eyes of a little boy. And so, it's, right. I would encourage. I would actually encourage people to come and bring their kids. Well, I'm going to do it. I can tell you that, and I know my granddaughters uh, would love it because they they're all into sports. And uh, but uh, I just and I just it's great. I mean, what a way to find to end the show was to find out it's going to be in Hershey in that uh, theater, two thousand seat. Just think of the of the uh, the area you're going to draw from that you really haven't drawn from previously. Yeah, I know. You know that's that's the, the yeah general yeah area. Yeah, we've never been we've never been to Bucks County, uh, which is certainly Eagles country, and right. we obviously have never been as far out as Hershey. But the idea of the idea the idea of bringing the story literally back to where it began to me is something I've I've always kind of had in my mind, like a fantasy that I would love to see it come true. And uh, lo and behold, this year we're finally going to get to do it. So I'm really really excited about that. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, Ray, I, I want to once again I want to thank you so much for being with us and. It gives the people uh, around the country an opportunity that are listening to our show to see what uh, not only what a great sports writer you were, what a great playwright, but the fact of uh, the interesting stories and the personality and what you bring uh, to every broadcast in Philadelphia, as well as when you're a visitor on somebody else's show. So thank you so very much. Absolutely. I, 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 always, I always enjoy being with you guys, so you take care. You too. Take care, God right? Bless. All right. Take care, care, Roger. See you, Don. Take care. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Mike Simzak is uh, on the line right now. Normally, when we talk to Mike, I haven't talked to him for a few weeks because I've been out a little under the weather, but everything's good now. Uh, And so we haven't talked much soccer. We haven't talked much Washington and or Baltimore uh, sports, whether it be basketball, hockey, or whatever. But I want to start the show off with his his, uh, number one love. And that is uh, U.S. soccer is moving, and the Warner Media is going to give $200 billion. Uh, that's one of the big stories today. The second big story, of course, earlier in the week is that the women are now going to make the same amount of money that the men make. And I know we talked about them many, many times, Mike, and uh, so your impression on both those stories. Uh, um, Don, before I get uh, get started on that, it is great to hear you back, hear you, and hear your voice again, and be sounding like you uh, missed you the last couple of weeks, brother. So good Thank to have you. you back. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think uh, it, 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 I have been talking on this subject for a little bit. The salary between the U.S. women have been great ambassadors 
of the game on our behalf for a long time. It is only a net positive that they'd be paid accordingly. And that is one of the things that keeps us as the most dominant women's program in the world. That's what's going to keep us as the Brazil of women's soccer. So that we're giving them the same uh, per diems, we're giving them the same bonuses, and I think this is the biggest one, that they're upgrading the playing conditions. That was a big one. Um, the they, didn't quite were, get, they didn't quite get all they wanted, though, Mike. They wanted it. They also encompassed some other things, which they didn't get, uh, total-wise money. But uh, the one they did, uh, what they did get is what they, well, that was the primary cause to begin with. Yeah, no, they didn't. And uh, the other thing that we've talked about is that the bonuses and the salaries for the women have always been slightly different. Um, in the last collective bargaining agreement, which actually expired a long time ago, uh, they had taken stipends on their salary for playing in the NWSL. Uh, so they had subsidized salary where the men's players did not need to do that. So they took some of their money out of that pot uh, differently. I think the big news out of this is that the pots have become a lot more equal. And that's what's key. Because when you look at the amount of money that the U.S. has been bringing in now in prize money and endorsements, and the endorsements are the key. Showing as much in prize money and endorsements, if not more than the U.S. member. And in that old argument about, well, the men actually bring in money uh, and more money, you got to pay your agents equal. You got to pay them proportionately. If you ask me, I, actually, women should probably be making more in bonus money and prize money because they actually, where the men have. And that's not what I'm thinking about. Thinking of men, men, We're losing you, Mike. Yeah, we got some. We have a we have a bad line here, Mike. Uh, are you in an area where? Are you on a, a cell phone? Maybe you're in an area where. Mike, Mike, <laughs> hang up. I'm going to call you, and we're going to get it through uh, on a three-way this way. Okay. Just bear with me. All right. No okay. Way. Okay. I'll be right with you, Don. Okay. We'll let Roger do that because uh, uh, Mike was, uh, for whatever the reason, uh, whether it's his location or what, uh, was breaking up, and it was very, very difficult to follow the conversation. So we'll try to correct that problem from a technical standpoint as uh, Roger tries to put him on a three-way with us, with uh, Frank uh, at the controls, obviously, and Braden's it. Yeah. Uh, well, we're taking here. Let's uh, let's go ahead and do our commercial for our uh, sponsor, and, and that would be uh, okay. We got we got Mike uh, together, Don. Mike, can you hear me? Can you hear us? I I can hear you guys fine. Can you hear? Oh, me? there we go. Now you're now. Yeah, that's much cool. better. Much better. Uh, before we start, you want you want to get a commercial in, Frank? Before we start. No, let's go ahead. Go ahead with Mike. We'll, we'll, I can do that at the end. Okay. All right. Uh, this is a complete. Uh, uh, our conversation about the women and, and making strides. Uh, the secondary part of my question was, uh, 
the Warner Media and the two hundred million dollar deal. Uh, now, of course, uh, soccer is now, you know, leaving one of the main events, at ESPN, and going now on the. How about this? Is this a good move? I think it's a huge move. Again, it shows more media. It shows the growing popularity of soccer in this country. Um, all I need to say is look at what the investment that we're putting into soccer, and then look at what's going on in baseball right now. Yeah. And Nothing's going on in baseball, Mike. Well, nothing's going on. All negative. Lo- <laughs> all negative, right? We have the lockout. We have the games. Um, it's not a major stretch to say that people who have enjoyed watching baseball in the past will enjoy watching soccer. It's a similar sort of game, you know, a little bit more strategy-based, things like that. The difference is you can fit soccer into a guaranteed two-hour window where you mm-hmm. can't do that with baseball. Mm-hmm. It is a better product when watched it's, it's a product that translates both live and on TV. I think that more and more outlets are realizing that soccer is a viable option in this country. And some of the other domestic sports that we've relied on for so long, for a variety of reasons, aren't as reliable as we thought they were. So here's an opportunity to get in at the ground level and, and build it up. That $200 million that you talk about is going to go a long way to stabilizing these leaks, enabling them to be more permanent so that we can continue to put that programming on so that we can grow the domestic game. Um, and this is for the women's league um, and men's league, you know, so that we can continue to grow this game it's it's all a net positive to me, Don. Well, I'll tell you, Mike. You know what else I think it is the the young people, the kids that were playing. My kids are now uh, parents themselves. For instance, my son played soccer, you know, all through uh, school and high school. Okay, and he's now fifty one with three kids. So now one's thirteen, another eleven, and then nine. So now you have. Uh, the father who played soccer as a kid loved it. Now you have his kids who have played some, and now you know they're getting involved watching it on TV. But I also wanted to ask you about this story I heard this afternoon. Uh, is it the uh, the team, one of the teams in England, uh, where uh, they are getting rid of the owner because he's Russian? Did you hear anything about that story? Um, it, it, yes. Um, Chelsea Football Club. Yes, they're currently sitting third in the Premier League. Uh, they are the defending uh, European champions, the defending Club World Cup champions. They're not getting rid of the owner. The owner is actually getting rid of them. Uh, Roman Abramovich is a who mm-hmm. has always had. Reported ties, never acknowledged, but reported ties to Chelsea, or to to, 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 Putin. to Putin, yeah. He was also recently requested by Ukraine to come in and help mediate this. 
he made the decision to sell the team and said that, you know, I think it's in the best interest of the team, given everything that's going on if I'm not there. And he pledged any profits from the sale of the team, he's going to donate to charities to benefit the Ukraine. So right. it's not that they got rid of him. He got rid of the He team. got rid of the team. But probably it was beneficial to him to get rid of the team because of the pressure that was being put on him. Well, on your secondary story there, the Post had a big story on it today, uh, that the reason that uh, the billionaire that owned the uh, New Jersey Nets, or one of the Brooklyn Nets now, uh, he was forced by Putin to, uh, even though he's a billionaire, he was forced by Putin two years ago to sell the team to the Chinese organization because uh, he is, uh, you know, indebted to Putin in a lot of different ways. Putin put the pressure on whether now, he's denying it. He's saying, no, that's not true. That's why I didn't sell. But as I said, it was a big story in the New York Post today, similar to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's slightly different. Um, Abramovich has enough money, and he has enough money overseas, overseas to see this out. Uh, this is actually, to me, a very high-profile break from Putin. A guy who has been very, very, very reputed to have close ties to him, basically saying to Putin, screw you, I'm going to give up voluntarily my number one asset at no profit and donate everything that I make off of this to Ukraine just to let you know I don't support you. Mm. This is, in many ways, what Abramovich is doing today is a massively high-profile flipping up the bird to Putin mm. and telling him, screw you, go home. I don't – that Roman Abramovich would break from him in such a high-profile way and divest himself of assets that he loves. If you read the statement that he said, It's never been about money. It's been about the love of the club and the love of the sport. And I am willing to give this up for its own best interest because I have been associated with, in a way that I deny, with Putin. I'm willing to give this up for its best interest. Basically read in between the lines to say, screw you. I want nothing to do with you anymore. Wow. That's a big move. And that's what I see in this. Like, he, 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 there's no reason. Like, he could, he has the money. He has money in offshore holdings. He has very close ties to Israel. He could see this out if he wanted to. Um, there are some clamorings amongst members of parliament in Britain, but a lot of that reads like, you're Russian, we hate you because you're Russian. Mm-hmm. Right now, more so than anything direct. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Mike, is, they're all billionaires. Uh, that's the interesting part. Every one of these, whether it was the owner of the uh, the Brooklyn Nets or whether it's uh, soccer owners, I mean, they're all billionaires. But, Don, I'll tell you, you can't be a billionaire in Russia right now without Putin. And if you have billionaires who are willing to make the moves 
that Roman Abramovich is to say, like, yeah, I know I'm a billionaire. I know I'm a billionaire because of you, but I will sell off assets. I will get rid of everything that I have that is connected to you because I want to break with you. That tells you how those guys feel. Well, same thing in China, Don and, and Mike. I mean, if you're not tied into uh, the Communist Party, you're not going to be a billionaire. But and this gives them that this this is where it, I think this I think what we've seen is for a lot of people, and this goes into what you you know what's going to cure this is complete and utter isolation. And he's mm-hmm. becoming more he being Putin is becoming more and more isolated because you have guys like um, Roman Abramovich saying like I will shed everything I need to to be rid of you. Um, down here in the D.C. area. Uh, Alexander Ovechkin was willing to basically say, you know, no war. Like, I, I, I come out against this. And well, he's he been has, the tiger. Though. He's really been the, the eye of the tiger over the last week or so. Every time there's a press conference, that's all they ask him about. Well, and, and with good reason, like, he has campaigned for Putin. Come out and said, like, no, I do not agree with this. And he's come out as strong as he can because you also got to remember Alexander Ovechkin's family right now is in Russia. That's right. Yeah, I don't. Let's know go to the let's go to the other let's go to the other end of the spectrum here, Mike, for a chance. <laughs> We're looking at MLS and uh, they just signed a young fellow, fourteen years of age. Uh, but the MLS is really starting to to make their move now and get the season underway. And some of your thoughts about. Uh, First of all, it's hard for me to believe that somebody 14 years of age would be a player that could compete at this level. You're not going to see much of this. Uh, Every once in a while, you will see a team sign a 14, 15, 16-year-old to a young contract. Um, Most of the time, these kids suffer at some point in time from the fact that they aren't as good at 18 as they were at 14. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to need to see, to the, you know, if you're a, you're a 14-year-old man and you, a 14-year-old kid, you go in and play in MLS, you're playing against grown men. Right. And that requires a lot. Um, Clearly, NYCFC and, and Citigroup think that this young man is talented enough to get his start um, for the Citigroup who owns properties in uh, Australia, um, NYCFC, and most notably Manchester City. This is somebody that they're hoping to sign at a relatively cheap price and possibly to bring him through either to the mothership, the flagship, a team in Manchester City or possibly to sell him on at a massive profit later on. I know that sounds awful, but that's how this works. Uh, We'll have to see. We've seen this with Freddie Adu most notably when he was signed at uh, 15 and he failed to develop. You have... On the other, you have a player like uh, Josie Altador, who played for the New York Red Bulls when he was uh, 16, 17, 
I remember. Yeah, uh, it's just a little bit older. A little bit older, but not much. Like, I remember the story being, like, he went out and played an MLS game and then had to go to his senior prom. Uh, It's not as uncommon to have 16, 17-year-olds playing professional uh, um, soccer over in England. Uh, Wayne Rooney, the, the legendary Manchester United player, and now the manager at Derby County, I think he got his start for Everton as a professional at 15. It happens, but, you know, it's always – it's a risk. It's a risk when you put these kids, these young kids up in a professional game, right, because now all of a sudden uh, – our good friend Leo Haggerty used to say about guys coming out of high school, you're never going to play again against a guy that was riding the yellow bus to school the year before. And that's how I looked at it. This kid is not going to end up playing again again against a bunch of kids who are getting uh, cokes and smiles from their parents at halftime. Well, well yeah, yeah. They were, they have, they've had 16-year-olds signed out of Latin America, 15, 16, uh, for many years, you know, and uh, some make it, some don't. And, and uh, that, but, I think that's a whole entire different story, Roger, is like, you know, I feel bad for the kids that don't make it because. Oh, I do too. Yeah. At the end of Fellas, the day, we, we got to hold it. We got to, we got to hold it right there. Doug Hamilton is standing by and uh, I'm had a chance to talk to Doug for a few weeks. Mike, thank you very, Mike, very much. I'll tell you. Week. Yeah. All you right, had a very you, interesting week with all the things that are happening. Don, it's always great to hear from you. Great to hear that you're doing well, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Absolutely. Thank you, my man. Doug Hamilton up next. and uh, Doug, uh, you've had some good weather and some bad weather. Our PGA professional in the Baltimore area has his own club down there that he's been uh, managing now for about six months, seven months. I know it was a great transition for him. and uh, But there really hadn't been too much golf yet, has there, Doug? No, Ryder Cup captain announced today, Doug, right? Yeah, Zach Johnson. Um, you know, that's that's a good pick. I mean, obviously he's, um, you know, in terms of the media and Excited. his personality. Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, he's he's an American. You know what I mean? He's through and through part of the Ryder Cup. Played on teams. Um, you know, he's a great long leader. time he's, since we won overseas, Doug. Was it? Well, yeah, but I think. Um, there's an awful lot to be excited about from a golf standpoint in terms of this international competition. Um, you know, throwing out the the PGA Tour where it's week to week and anybody can win, and, and, you know, obviously we've talked about that, but, you know, you stack the American lineup up, you know, head to toe, top to bottom, and there's some pretty serious talent on there. And, and what we discovered during this last Ryder Cup was, you know, the, the big boys that we've known for a while, which were Dustin Johnson and, and Bubba Watson and, and guys like that who, you know, who did the Tiger, obviously, uh, Phil Mickelson. You know, there's somewhat of a changing of the guard to some of these younger players, Colin Morikawa and Scotty Scheffler and, um, you know, all these guys that, um, you know, ha- have stepped up. I mean, there's – plenty of people that, that are going to make it a case for themselves and, and, and get themselves front and center on this team. And, and um, you know, it's exciting uh, to watch golf every week and to see some of these people bloom, um, you know. So, yeah. Roger? 
Well, I, I heard him uh, today uh, with uh, the Mad Dog, and uh, he was, like, really excited about it. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I am not that big of a uh, golfer. I watch it a lot. But uh, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, he really impressed me, My uh, you know, uh, Doug, about how excited he was and, and uh, bringing a lot of energy. And uh, you've got, mm-hmm. what, six and six, right? Uh, and uh, about, you know, when he has to substitute, if he does, you know, I, it just brought a lot of information to me in a short period of time. But it's always good to hear somebody who was really excited about something that they're uh, getting into and, and going to sure. be uh, sharing or captioning. Cap, yeah, I mean, over the course of time, a lot of the, you know, past Ryder Cup, uh, captains have been more cerebral in their approach to um, how they manage, um, whether it's the room itself or the picks they have or, you know, those sorts of things. I mean, I, I think, you know, Zach Johnson brings a unique personality to, you know, to being the captain. And, and um, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, he's a fairly ebullient person uh, when it comes to, um, you know, the interviews he's gotten. I mean, I know that he has a, a very strong faith. Um, and that's kind of guided him in terms of um, some of the answers he may give or, or the personality that, that he shows. Um, so uh, it's a good pick. Um, you know, I, I, I agree. I think it's a good pick. Doug, some thoughts on the controversy, which is pretty much over now, as to whether uh, the Sharks are going to be able to start a, <laughs> a new golf tour, uh, you know, and, and – uh, what's going to happen there, but I'd, I'd like you to comment on two areas. One, the whole concept of trying to fight the PGA and create a, a, an alternate uh, golf tournament. And two, uh, after all the good things that's happened uh, uh, on the on golf tournament uh, over the years, uh, some of the players, I, I just don't understand how uh, Mickelson for one. I mean, how can you, you know, say anything bad about it? The PGA, they they made them. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the the PGA Tour gave you know Phil Mickelson and and you know countless others, countless others, like more than countless others, a platform and an, an opportunity to compete and and, and make money. Um, Phil's always been outspoken with regard to whether it's uh, you know the. USGA or, or different individuals um, and how they set golf courses up or the competitions or, or those sorts of things. He's been overly critical over the years. Um, you know, I don't know who, who gives who the right to, to make those comments or, or, you know, share those opinions. Um, you know, we, we know as consumers that, you know, monopolies are bad because that, that gives, you know, all the power to the governing bodies and you don't have any other options. Um, you know, Greg Norman's been a, a thorn in the side of the PGA for very many years in an effort to try to create such a tour. Um, and it hasn't you know, stopped clearly, yet. No. And, and, and clearly the, the people that play on the, the, the players that play on the PGA tour feel loyal to the brand that they have and, you know, don't want to go outside of that. Um, you know, I mean, if you're, um, you know, somebody like the USFL or, or all these other, you know, the XFL or all these other, you know, uh, opportunities to try to compete with the NFL over the years. You saw how that worked. I mean, 
you know, unfortunately the, you know, that's the only game in town and if that's what you want to do then that's what you do. I mean, you know, back to Phil Mickelson, I mean, you know, um, he, he has the right to criticize and, and say his opinion based on, you know, how these different things are run. I mean, we can all probably pitch our hats into the ring and say that the, you know, uh, the commissioner of, of Major League Baseball is a clown. I mean, you know, when it comes to, you know, trying to work out a deal here, you know, you've got billionaires who are or arguing with millionaires, and the only real loser is the fans. Um, you know, and, and some of the bottom dwellers, like the minor leaguers that are trying to eke out a living and um, in some cases obviously get their next opportunity. Um you know, it seems like um, the commissioner of basketball uh, kind of has his ducks in a row. I mean, you know, Roger Goodell's been often criticized for, uh, you know, different things. And obviously in the media you have uh, all the surrounding components of Brian Flores and, and all the hirings of, of coaches and diversification and, and all this kind of stuff. And there's just a lot of clouded stuff there. So, you know, I mean, it, it you know, it begs the question. I mean, it, it gives – a lot of these people the right to criticize. I mean, who's right and who's wrong? I mean, you know, I don't know that we'll find that answer. Well, you know, you know we've talked about that. Well, we've talked about this, uh, the minor leagues before you played baseball in college, mm-hmm. and et cetera. Sure. And, uh, but it brought back memories uh, to me of the, uh, when I was young and the NBA, because the great players in the NBA, now you, you have a will. He didn't need to, supplement his income okay from day one but uh, one of the greatest players in the first 75 uh, years of uh, the nba paul arison and he worked in the off season at ibm and then when the warriors were sold uh to uh, i think it was franklin uh, muley out in san francisco he decided to stay in philadelphia and end his career and but all those guys, uh, and also in the early years, and I don't mean real early years, but like the uh, '60s, uh, when Chuck Bednarik uh, was playing both ways for the Eagles, he was working for Warner Concrete. That's how he got the name mm-hmm. Concrete Charlie. So right. I mean, I sympathize with the minor league players, but I also look at what the pro leagues, uh, in two cases the way it was for them when they were great players and playing, but they had to supplement their income. And I, and uh, you know, I think, I think everybody needs to share, but as I heard today, I think the players also need to kick in to help these mm-hmm. younger players to, for the, the sure. betterment of the game. Well, there's, you know, I don't, I don't know the full negotiation slash labor agreement and, you know, set sticking points between the two, but I know that one of the things I, I had heard that they were talking about was that the the basic minimum wage for uh, Major League Baseball players is like they want it to be like $700,000. And so essentially, you know, a lot of the owners are complaining that that's too high and that they're going to have to, you know, reappropriate other monies from – and I'm thinking like, all right, look, man, first of all, Major League Baseball as a whole, you know, you're trying to – unbleep the last how many years of mess ups in this labor negotiation when there's no salary cap and we've known that major league baseball has been broken forever. I mean, 
can you can you honestly tell me that it's fair for the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox or the Los Angeles Dodgers to play in a regular season and then go to the World Series and play against the Tampa Bay Rays who had the 28th payroll? I mean, how is that possible to sit there and say, you know, the New England Patriots get $225 million to spend on their salary cap, but the Buffalo Bills only get $100 million? Like that's basically what you're saying is is okay. So, so how are you how are you going to undo all this stuff and and make people of a level playing field? And you have all these, you know, concepts of new statistical analysis that people are doing with, you know, uh, WAR and on base percentage and all these different statistics that people want to say, okay, well, my X number last year was this, so I should get paid based on this when what I mean, seriously, I mean, we, we're, we're talking about, you know, different planets where these people reside that, you know, I mean, if you're a Major League Baseball player, I mean, really, is $700,000 too much money to make as a minimum wage? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't – I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I mean look, at, look at the NBA and these guys that are making forty, fifty, sixty million $50, million a year. I mean, this is ridiculous. What are we talking about? And don't play. Like I'll tell you what's. Players. I'll tell you what's more ridiculous, Doug, and that is the guys that are signing contracts to be analysts now in the National Football League. Yeah. Yeah. Who in the? I mean, how? I mean, unbelievable to me. <clears throat> the CBS, ESPN, all the all the networks. I don't care what Fox. You know, all we're going to bargain. Am, Amazon gonna comp- now, Don. Amazon and Amazon. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, uh, Michael sits, sits there and says, "Well, uh, we're ninety percent sure." that I'm going to move to Amazon on Thursday night, except I want to know who the analyst is going to be that I'm going to be working. Tell me the last thing that you remember that was significant that one of these analysts said in any game in the last 10 years that you would pay them $80 million to say it. I mean, you've got to be nuts. Absolutely. I I would love to sign a five-year contract in anything (laughs) – and after the first year, be deemed to be terrible at my job and be fired and still get paid for four more years. I would love to do that. In fact, someone out there who's listening can sign me up tomorrow if they'd like to, to pay me for four years after I've been terrible at my job for the first. So, well, Doug, I can tell you, I can tell you the thing that really has uh, opened my eyes is what a teacher goes through every day mm-hmm. today. And yeah. and I make $85 and I work eight hours. That's right. $10 an hour, well, a little over. You know, okay. Roger, that's that's such a valid point because in the real world that, that we all live in where you have, you know, teachers and police officers and firefighters and, and individuals right. that, that go to work every day Public and actually service. grind – they they grind it, man, and and put up with a lot of BS, and you know, in, in various fashions, are, are are you know in charge of our child's future slash our safety, or you know, however you want to look at that. And you know, I mean, I, I guess the other side of that is the fact that in most cases, those individuals are part of unions, which you know that that kind of changes the playing field a little bit. But you know. Um, it's, I mean, you know, I don't know. It's it's a matter well, of perspective. Yeah, the other you know, thing I mean, is Chris Russo uh, had a good point today, too, Don, and, and uh, 
and Doug and Frank, and he was saying that, and he's on the MLB Network, and uh, you know, and he's a talk show host. He said, and I've heard this from a lot of media members: baseball players are the most uncooperative when it comes to uh, interviewing and and yeah. being uh, cordial to the media. And, no question. And Don, I don't ever remember that that way in the old days. When we were at the vet, and we go down and, and uh, get the uh, interviews after the game, and uh, you know Henry was there and, and Skip and uh, the whole crowd, and uh, I don't remember, but it's been a long time since I've been in uh, at least you know several years since I've been in a major league locker room. Well, Roger, you got to remember that Chan and Devil say the same thing. You know they've changed the format now. You know we used to be able to game is over, you go down, we walk in the in the clubhouse that we interview Larry Bow or whoever we want to talk to. Now you can't do that. You know, they well, have designated people. COVID. Yeah, but, I mean, what? even if you go back to the year before COVID, then you could still go and interview them. Yeah. But COVID yeah. changed everything, and they're, and they're going to keep it that way, I'm sure. Yes, they are. Well, yes, they are. But I'll tell one, you one last, before we run out of time, I, I you know, always like to talk about Arnold Palmer's tournament at Bay Hill. I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, Orlando this weekend. The weather's supposed to be terrific, going to be warm, going to be 85, 86 degrees. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, uh, you know, Arnold made that course, owned it, and made the tournament. Uh, <clears throat> I just think it's one of the really highlight tours, uh, stops on the tour. What do you think, Doug? I totally agree with you. I mean, obviously, Arnold was such a prince. Um you know, I had the opportunity to meet him and got my picture taken with him, and um, wow. he's, he uh, later signed it. It's sitting here on my wall. Um, you know, really cool moment that I had to have a chance to chat with him for a second. But, I mean, you know, he's the king and, um, you know, very revered and, and very accomplished. Um, you know, unfortunately with his passing, I mean, you have a memorial-type tournament, so you know, I think a lot of uh, the, the true historians of the game that play, um, you know, on a week-in and week-out basis have reverence for individuals like him and, and know uh, what he did to pave the way so that they could have that opportunity. Um, Not only that, you know, but creating think, the Golf Channel, he was one of the foremost, uh, foremost thinkers uh, about yeah. that uh, the Golf Channel could be a reality. Sure, he's he's obviously on the Mount Rushmore of golf in terms of his of his face there. So, um, I mean, that's the only way we can continually move forward as a as a community and a society, and um, you know, not just in our accomplishments, but what we give back to other people. And it it takes that baton pass for the person that receives it to understand what they're getting. Um, you know, and I hope that that's some of the focal point of of what they talk about during the tournament as a you know as a whole, aside from you know, just the good play or the golf course or the weather or, or any of those other ancillary things that, that may, you know, be discussed. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's always a great event. And the great yeah, thing and the great thing about golf still is you got to win to win. <laughs> you it's, know, it's if you go out there week in and week out, you got to win. Well, it's it's you against the golf course. It's you against you. Um, you know, there's there's no way that you can say that, you know, he didn't pass it to me or, he didn't, you know, he didn't make the tackle or, you know, that was the wrong pitch he called or any of that crap. It's it's you. And, um, you know, that's one of the best parts about the game of golf. Um, the only person, the only person you can blame is yourself. 
and that's kind of you, what it you should know, be. Don, you you had a point there which uh, about the Golf Channel. I think they made a really big mistake moving it out of the, the uh, Golf Channel out of Orlando to NBC Sports in Stamford, Connecticut. I mean, I I could not. I was shocked that they did that because when you're in Orlando, you have access to so many golfers for a big portion of the year, okay, and and athletes, okay. You know, I I don't get it. I don't get that at all. I mean, Stanford, Connecticut, with 14 inches of snow. Come on, give me Orlando. Dollar bills. Yeah, dollar bills, I guess, save money. That's what they all come yeah. down to. Well, yeah. I guess you, what you guys, have you come up with Troy Aikman's number one statement over the last eight years that he's been a color analyst that would give you $50 billion, $60 billion? What do they What yeah. do they say? What do, well, it, the it first all started with 90% Tony 90% of the 90% of the TV sets are in sports bars, and they don't even have the sound on. They don't have it on, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Well, okay. The people. CBS is the one that started the whole thing. They never should have given that kind of money to Tony Romo. I have no idea, uh, you know, what they were thinking. And then if you listen to. Oh, uh, we're out of time, boys. Uh, Thank you very much. Always, Doug, a pleasure. Roger, always good to get together with you, Frank. It's in your hands. You're you're recovering. Talk to you next week. Take care. Have a great week, Frank. Love you. Appreciate it. God bless. Okay, Ladies and gentlemen, at the, uh, at the beginning of the program, we gave you some numbers, 31, 39, 42, and 51. They're not the lottery numbers. They are, however, what the um, Florida power uh, grids have allowed to, uh, been allowed to raise your rent. I'm sorry, raise your rates over the last three years. Now they're going to get another one, probably t- between 15 and 20%. Uh, because of the coal situation. If, you want to, if you're tired of paying those additional monies, think about solar panels. Think about biosolar. Biosolar is a product built right here in Florida, but they are licensed in every state, so they can go to anywhere in the world and put uh, these panels up. The deal with them is for the next 25 years, you pay the, amount, the same amount to them and you save on your electric bills. So if you have any idea that you want to make that change, give Patrick a call at 727-314-6976. That's 727-314-6976. Buyer Solar is the corporation, and Patrick is the, the sales manager. Ladies and gentlemen, this program is brought to you each and every night of the week with grateful appreciation. And then when the United States Armed Forces when and police and fire services. When you're out there and you see somebody in uniform, please acknowledge them. These are very, very tough times for men and women in uniform. These programs are also dedicated to those who lost their lives in the line of duty. Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman David Curtis, Patrolman David Colfax, Sergeant Jeffrey, sorry, Sergeant Thomas Badinger, Patrolman Jeffrey Yazid, Detective Ricky Bell, Detective Ricky Childers, San Diego Officer Mike Henry, <clears throat> Sergeant Tom Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Department, <clears throat> Patrolman Charlie Condit, Tarpon Springs Police Department, Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, Philadelphia Fire Department, Lieutenant Joyce Craig Lewis, 
close the fire department. Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department. Sergeant uh, Chris LeBake, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department. Patrolman Anako Crispin, Lakeland PD. Lieutenant Joe Zerba, Newcastle County Police. Deputy Josh Myers, Nassau County Sheriff's Department. Captain Matt Materno, Philadelphia Fire Department. Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department. Lieutenant Ardeth Hope, Wilmington Fire Department. Lieutenant Jerry Ficus, Wilmington Fire Department. Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol. Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol. Chief Al Hogle, Longwood Key Police Department. Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department. My brothers and sisters, I know you may be 10-7 at this point in time, and sometime will be 10-10 at the table of the Lord. Until that time, may the rose rise up to meet you. May the winds be always at your back. May the sun shine lightly on your face, and the rain fall softly on your fields. Until we meet again, may the good Lord keep you and your family always in the hallow of his hands. Good night, God bless, and have a great week.
counting just first in 1999. Counting just first in 1999. Counting just first in 1999. All units be advised, 99's responded to a place of emergency. May God rest his soul. 